See, the danger for us is that we so often want to make Jesus a part of our supporting cast. And we want to add him in to get what we want. Well, maybe if if I just add Jesus into my life, he'll help me get where I want to go. But we're thinking about that backwards because we're to be about him. We're to be about his glory, not our own glory. We're to pattern our lives after him. I'm going to invite Andrew Young uh, to come on up. He's going to read for us this morning. So if you would stand with us, you can turn to chapter 21 of the book of Acts. All right. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nassan of Cyprus, an early disciple, with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. You may be seated. Thanks, Andrew. Well, we, we come into Acts 21, and we just read a highlight of it. We're actually going to be making our way from verse 1 through 36. And I say that kind of as a warning, because some of you are like, oh, man. Um, but this whole chunk... We're going to watch as Paul really sets his face towards Jerusalem. As he starts to make his way, he's been warned time and time again to stay out of Jerusalem, and yet he keeps moving forward. And as I was thinking about this passage, I was actually reminded of a time when I was a kid, uh, and my dad needed some help doing some stuff up on the roof, and he he said I could go up on the roof with him, which as a a little kid, playing up on the roof sounded like the coolest thing in the world. And so gladly, I climbed up on the ladder, got up there as quick as I could, and got up on the roof and felt the pitch and felt the little warbly and all that, and I was like, life and death hangs before me, and I loved it, right? And everything was super fun until I had to get back down. And then suddenly I had to get back down on the ladder, but I I couldn't quite see where my feet were going and and get down. And so there was a gap probably about this this far between where my foot was and where the ladder was that I I couldn't, I, I didn't quite trust. And I kept kind of doing, doing this thing where I was like, wouldn't, wouldn't go down. And my dad's like, buddy, you got this. I'm with you. I'm right here. And, and all the reassurance. And I was like, ah, I can't do it. And I locked up. There was no other way aside from jumping, which wasn't going to end well. And so I was like, I have to go back down. But that, that gap, right, that gap felt insurmountable to me. And even though I knew that this ladder could carry me, that it was strong enough to hold my weight, my my faith could not surpass this little gap. And for some of us, when when things get hard or when the road gets narrow or when we perceive a block in front of us, it's hard to continue to move forward. 
One of my favorite stories is the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, we really have to go back to The Hobbit and start from there. But in the Fellowship of the Rings, there's a conversation that happens between Gandalf and Frodo Baggins. Frodo Baggins has been given the task of carrying the ring to the very fires of Mordor, and he has to cast it in, right? And it's, it's this incredible story of this small, frail hobbit who's given this mighty task. And at this one moment, they're sitting in this cave and they're talking back and forth, Frodo and Gandalf. And, and Frodo just simply says this. He said, I, I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And I love that line. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. The passage that we step into this morning, we watch as Paul makes his way back to Jerusalem. He's not unaware of what awaited him. And yet he continues forward. He knew the potential firestorm that his presence would create and still he continued forward. Last week in our passage, we saw that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit had warned him of of imprisonments and afflictions. That's what awaited him in Jerusalem. We'll see others who warn him in our passage today, and still he continues forward in faith. Not allowing that gap of of faith and trust to, to overcome, but no, stepping fully knowing that the weight of who Jesus is could carry him forward into whatever he would face. And so for us, we all have to decide what to do with the time that is given to us. And what we'll discover is that Paul had already made that decision. He had made that decision when Christ had decided to reveal himself to Paul on that road to Damascus. And since that day, Paul had lived saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. But the question for us is what will we decide to do with the time that is given to us? When we face the darkness, when the perils seem to close in, Will we walk forward in faith or will we shrink back in fear? In verse 1 of chapter 21, we, we pick up where we left off. Paul is leaving Miletus. He's just talked with the Ephesian elders in this, this really poignant moment in the midst of the book of Acts. And he begins to make his journey towards Jerusalem. And, and you can see on this map that I put up here, you can see the path that he's taking from Miletus. He's going to go down all the way to Kaz, to Rhodes. There's a little spot in there, Patera, that he's going to stop there. And then he's going to make his way down to Tyre. And as he's making his way all the way back, he's, he's fixated on going to Jerusalem. But as he's stopping, we're going to see the hospitality of the early church as people just begin taking him into their home. In Acts 21.4, and having sought out the disciples, this is after they landed in Tyre, after having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So for seven days, as the ship's unloading its cargo, preparing for more, more things, they're staying there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
So Paul, as entire, we don't know how this church formed. We don't have any information on, on, was this one of Paul's journeys? Was this somebody else who started this church? All we know is that while he was there for seven days, he gathered with other disciples, other believers. And through the Spirit, they warned him not to go. Now, the confusing part in this is that we already have seen in Acts 20 that Paul said, I am compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now we have disciples that are saying, Paul, you should not be going. They're warning him against what he will experience in Jerusalem. And so for us, we have to go, what does that mean? Who, who is right? Who is listening to the Spirit correctly? What, what are we to discern from this moment? And what I believe is unfolding here and what we see continue to unfold here is that so often our experience, much like their experience, is when we discern hardship, our initial inclination is, well, then that's not the way to go. When we experience discomfort, we're like, well, this is not what I signed up for. When we experience hardship for a loved one, we become even more protective And so the spirit we're going to see is constantly revealing to the disciples, to Paul, that hardships await him. But never is the spirit saying to Paul, don't go. No, the spirit's compelling him forward. But it's the the love and care of those disciples for Paul. Wherever he goes, we see this affection for him that they're like, we don't want you to have to experience this. We don't want you to have to face this. And this is where we begin to see the parallels of Paul's life with Jesus' life. Because didn't Jesus experience the same thing as he started to set his face towards Jerusalem, as he started to share with the disciples that he was going to have to die, that the disciples were like, no, 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 you've got this wrong. This isn't how this is going to work, Jesus. There's actually a different way. Let us tell you how we're going to protect you. But no, Jesus continued willing to pour out his life so that others may live. Paul, in the same way, compelled by the Spirit, continues to move forward in faith, even knowing what is awaiting him on the other side. He's going forward. He understands the risks. He understands the cost, but he's compelled. He's going to listen to the Spirit above anybody else. And there's a few reasons for Paul that he really wants to get there, that we see come out in his writings. One is that he wanted to bring the gift that he had been collecting from all the churches to bring this gift, this monetary gift, to the Jerusalem church. And his hope was, because Paul's ministry was all about breaking down barriers, his hope was that this gift was going to help to bring unity to the church, that those Jewish Christians would start to accept the Gentile Christians, and there wouldn't be this division between the two, but that this could be a moment that brings them together. But what we know is that that Paul was fully aware of how tall a task that was. See, he's coming in, it's about 57 AD. The mid-50s were a volatile time in Jerusalem. They were a volatile time because the oppression of the Romans was really kicking up the Jewish nationalism. They were tired of being oppressed. They were tired of being pinned down. And so they were becoming hyper-nationalist in their viewpoint. So even Christianity was seen as as a threat to the Jewish way of life. So Paul coming at this time, he was seen as a threat to the Jewish way of life. But Paul's not unaware of this. When he spent three months in Corinth, when he wrote the letter to the Roman church, we get a small glimpse of this. He was asking for others to pray for him. Reading in Romans 15, 30 through 32, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, 
What he's saying there is, would you please pray for me that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? He knows he's heading to Jerusalem. Would God deliver me from the unbelievers in Judea? He knows that there's oppression coming his way and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that my gift, my, my message, would it be acceptable to the saints? Would it not kick up division? So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company because ultimately he's going to go from Jerusalem. He wants to get to Rome. And so Paul saw all this. He, he knew the dangers. But what I love is he knew the danger and he was still hopeful. See, because he had faith in a gospel that can change all things, that can break down barriers. And so he was willing to go into the belly of the beast because he was hopeful in the victorious uh, Messiah that is Jesus. And so he continues to move forward, hopeful that this gift he's bringing could bring about peace and unity, hopeful that this gift that he's bringing could really be a, a fulfilled prophecy from Zechariah in Zechariah 8, 20 through 23, that the nations would come to the support of the Jerusalem church. And so Paul continues to move forward in faith. And we're told that even though they warn them, they all kneel on the famously sandy shores of Tyre before he moves on. And in this beautiful community moment as they come together and they pray with each other and for one another. And then Paul continues on. Next, he will go from Tyre down to, to Ptolemais, also known as Akko. You can see it here in this map. He's going to make his way down until he finally gets to Jerusalem, making some stops in Caesarea. Now, in Caesarea, we're told in verse 8 that Paul and his company entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So as he's coming into Caesarea, we're, we're brought back to a character that we've already met before, uh, Philip, known as the Evangelist, Philip, one of the seven who was tasked to care for, for the widows. Philip, a deacon of the church, but Philip also who was the one who stepped into Samaria and proclaimed the gospel. Philip who would come alongside the Ethiopian eunuch and proclaim the good news to him. Philip lived up to his name, the evangelist, well. And what's unique is that this is the only time we have this designation of evangelist in all of the book of Acts. And so Philip is given this unique designation. And I think one is because he was an evangelist. Wherever he went, he was sharing the good news, but also it helped differentiate between Philip the apostle. So we know exactly which Philip we're talking about. And this particular Philip, the last time we had seen him was all the way back in Acts 840, and we had left him in Caesarea. And now years have passed and his family has grown and he has four daughters, four young daughters that all prophesied. And what I love about the book of Acts is it's proclaiming the truth of what's God do, what God is doing, but then we also see the evidence of it. Because what happened that first Pentecost when Peter stood up and he preached to the masses around him? What did he say? He used the words of the prophet Joel, and we read them in Acts 2.17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So here we have evidence that God is pouring out his spirit. That Philip the evangelist, his daughters are prophesying in the name of the Lord. Now, they don't give a particular message here. We don't hear from them, but we, we do have some uh, ex external evidence that they, they lived a long time and that they were known as, as godly women who prophesied in the name of the Lord. 
But while they're staying with Philip, while they're spending time with him, uh, they receive a visit from someone else. And it's somebody else that we already encountered earlier in Acts 11.28. And it's a man by the name of Agabus, who was considered a prophet of the time. And verse 10 says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt. And he bound his own feet and his hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus, the prophet, comes and he warns Paul again of what awaits him. Notice he's, he's not dissuading him. He's just letting him know this through the Spirit. This is what is awaiting you. This is the second warning that Paul's already received on this trip. But Agabus, channeling his inner Hebrew prophet, he acts this out. He takes Paul's belt, which would have been significant in length, and he binds his own hands and his feet, and he says, thus shall be the one whose belt this belongs to, that you will be handed over to the Gentiles. Again, we see the parallels of the life of Jesus, knowing that where Paul is going, it's not going to end well. And yet, we find that Paul doesn't flinch. He continues to set his face towards Jerusalem, continuing forward in faith. Now, his companions had a much different reaction, right? Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now remember, this is one of the we passages. So Luke, the author of this, is, is writing in this. I was, I was part of the party that was like, Paul, we don't want you to go. We don't want you to experience what awaits you in Jerusalem. Everyone there seemed to, to think it was unwise for him to go any further. And yet Paul would not be dissuaded. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul is not unclear in this moment. He has crystal clarity in this moment. He knows exactly what he's about. He knows exactly where he's going. And he said so much in all of his letters. He leaves very little doubt. Here he says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Philippians 2, 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul has been prepared to die since the day he first said yes to Jesus. Because the day he said yes to Jesus, Paul died to himself. Because to live is Christ, to put on the mind of Christ, and to die is gain, to be in his presence. Now, I imagine the heartfelt plea of those around him that were like, Paul, Paul, we don't want you to experience this. And yet when he speaks this, they can see in his eyes, we will not change his mind. Verse 14, it says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. 
So in this moment, Paul would not change course. He moves forward in faith. And so collectively, this group of disciples, they practice the words of Christ, your kingdom come, your will be done. We don't like what we're experiencing. We don't like what our friend is about to experience, but we trust you. And we trust what you are doing in this moment. So your will and your way be done. And it's here that we begin to see how Paul was able to so clearly decide what to do with the time that was given to him. Even when things were perilous, even when things were dark, even when the way forward seemed unclear, Paul had clarity. For to truly live, we must first die. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It's not about you. It's all about Christ. And we must lose our lives for Christ's sake, and only then will we truly find life. See, the danger for us is that we so often want to make Jesus a part of our supporting cast. And we want to add him in to get what we want. Well, maybe if if I just add Jesus into my life, he'll help me get where I want to go. But we're thinking about that backwards. Because we're to be about him. We're to be about his glory, not our own glory. We're to pattern our lives after him. But my question for us here is what are the things that you're still holding on to that you've not given over to Jesus? Where are the places that you are still centering your life on your will and your way? Is it your comfort? Is it you just want to do the things that you want to do? Is it, is it your kids? You've centered your life on them to their will and their way. Is it, is it your career? Is it your, your influence? Is it your finances? Is it that illusion of control that we so often try to cling to? Is it your failures that you just play on repeat and let define you? What are the things that you are allowing to define you outside of Christ? See, Paul knew what he was about, and he knew what he was for. He was for Christ. He was moving forward even into the hard things, even into pain. But his suffering was never wasted, for it was all to the glory of Jesus. And so submitting himself to the will of God and moving forward in faith, Paul and the company, they made their way to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that we're going to slow the pace of this story down considerably. We've been moving in chunks of time from weeks and days, and suddenly now we're going to cover 12 days from chapter 21, verse 17, through chapter 23, verse 35. Now, once we get back to chapter 24, uh, we're going to cover two years from chapter 24, 1 through 26, 32. Things are going to move real quick again. But for, for whatever reason, Luke is slowing us down over this next 12-day period because he's deeming it important that God has drawn attention to these moments that Paul is being uh, put on trial time and time again. And so we're going to slow down and, and see what unfolds here. Because when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the first thing he experiences is being warmly received by the brothers. They take him in. They're excited to see him. He meets with James. 
James, the half-brother of Jesus, the one who was a leader of the Jerusalem church, the one who was so significant in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem council, James who had such a large voice in the early church. And so he comes and he meets with James and he meets with the other elders of the church. And he begins to share with them all that he's experienced, all that God has done on his missionary journeys across the globe and how God has, has moved in the lives of Gentiles and, and Jews and, and all people. And as he begins to recount to them all that God has done, they heard it and they glorify God. That's what we're told, that they glorified God. They were praising him. And so I want to stop there just for a second because we just need to take that in, that they heard this news from Paul, that God was moving across the globe, and they glorified God. They praised God for what he was doing. But then this conversation progresses, and it moves from glorifying God to, to sharing some concerns that they have now that Paul is back in town. And picking back up in verse 20, again, is when they heard it, when they heard all these news, they glorified God. And they said to him, they said to Paul, you see, brother, you know, when you start with, you see, brother, you know, there's, there's, there's something coming. You see, uh, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they, they're all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. See, the division between the groups is still present. The gospel is being proclaimed. These are brothers in Christ standing firm with each other. But the teachings of Paul are still seen as radical. The Jews believed that Paul was teaching against the law when in fact he was teaching the fulfillment of Christ in it. And James and the elders, they were concerned because of the perception of who Paul was. And with Paul present, they were worried there could be trouble. Now, if we've learned anything in reading through the book of Acts, we know that wherever Paul is, there is trouble. So they had good reason to be afraid of this. So what's to be done? Because people are already looking like, oh, he's back in town, that one who's against the law, that one who's against our way of life. And so they come up with a solution, and they present it to Paul. They give him an idea. This is, this is how people can see that you actually are trying to live out the law. And so beginning in verse 23, it says, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Most likely this was a Nazarite vow. They would have abstained from drinking any alcohol. They would have shaved their head. They would have gone through purity rites. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses. Now, what he's saying here is not insignificant because this would have been seven days of a purification rite and Paul would have been paying for all this as they went to the temple daily for seven days to be a part of this. And so it's not a small cost that's being paid here. So that they may shave their heads. So, so he's getting, again, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance to the law. And so like, we've got an idea. You're going to take care of these guys. You're going to show up at the temple. People are going to see you living as a good and observant Jew while still proclaiming Christ. And this is going to appease everybody. This is going to bring unity. This is a good thing. 
But they also make sure, because Paul was going to be concerned with what? The, the law doesn't save us. It's Jesus that saves us. And we're not about to put the law on the Gentiles. And so they said, no, 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 verse 25. But as for the Gentiles, you know, we've been through this. Who have believed, as for the Gentiles who have believed, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And then Paul took the men the next day and he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. And so Paul goes along with this plan. He steps in and he goes to the purification rites for himself, which he probably would have needed to do anyway because he'd been traveling so broadly that to come back into the temple, he would have had to gone through some sort of purification. And he pays for these four other men to go through it as well and announcing that they're going to be doing this for seven days. Essentially, he was telling all those around, hey, I'm going to be here for seven days. You're going to know right where I am for seven days. So why would Paul do this? Why would Paul suddenly feel like he needs to, to cater to this group? I mean, this is Paul. This is the one who's been fighting for the rights of the Gentiles, that, that the law is fulfilled in Christ and that we're no longer subservient to it. But because Paul was so continually seeking to break down barriers and not build them up. We remember his own words in 1 Corinthians 9.20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to what? To win the Jews. Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. Paul said, I will become all things to all people in order that the name of Christ may be known. And so this compromise, he's like, fine, if that's going to help the name of Christ go forward, if that's not going to create this division, I'll do it. And so he takes these men, knowing the prophecies that have come, the warnings that the Spirit has stirred inside himself, and he goes into Jerusalem, and not just to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple itself, where there'd be absolutely no hiding from those who are out to get him. And remembering all the warnings, remembering all of that, Paul continues forward in faith, trusting that Jesus has him there for a reason, and he is going to, to show up. And if it costs him his life, so be it, but he's going to make the name of Christ known. He doesn't seek to avoid any confrontations. And so in Acts 21, 27, when the seven days were almost completed, we read that the Jews from Asia, this would be the Jews from Ephesus, they suddenly show up. And we know things didn't go great in Ephesus. There is a little bit of combatants there and kind of everywhere Paul goes. But, but the Jews from Ephesus, the Jews from Asia, they show up and they see him in the temple and they stirred up the whole crowd, laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. They're frantic. Men of Israel, help. We've got them. This is the one. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And so they bring two accusations against him. He's turning the people against the law. He's turning people against the way of Moses. He's turning people against Torah, the very instructions that they had received from God himself. And the second thing is that he is bringing Greeks into the temple. He is allowing those who are unclean to come into the temple. Both accusations are serious. One is to blaspheme the Torah. The other is punishable by death. Ben Witherington, a scholar and author, said, Josephus describes the walls 
which separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts as a stone barricade about four and a half feet high, reflecting excellent workmanship. Meaning they spent a lot of time building this, this barrier so that the Gentiles could only come so far into the temple complex. And that at regular intervals, there stood stone slabs giving warning, some in Greek, some in Latin, that no foreigner was permitted to enter the holy place. Now, throughout antiquities, we found two of these signs. One of them is housed in a museum in Istanbul. The other is at the museum in Jerusalem. And the message on these signs reads this. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for what follows. Death. That's the description that he is given. This is, this is the, the second accusation that they're bringing against him. And what's, this, what's the reason for this? Where are they pulling from saying that Paul has brought somebody in who's unclean? Well, verse 29 tells us, for they had previously seen Tromephus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, did you catch that? They saw him with Tromephus, an Ephesian, a Greek, and they supposed, they assumed they assumed that Paul had brought him in. Paul never did this. Paul never created this action. They assumed because they had seen this man. But, but no, it's untrue. But they had made their minds up already, hadn't they? They had already decided that they were coming for Paul no matter what. And so this story was going to fit the narrative that they wanted to. See, I, I think there's something here for us to remember as we've been reading through the, the, the scriptures throughout the year, we find ourselves currently in Proverbs. And if you've been reading along with us, I hope you've been enjoying that. But one of the Proverbs that stood out to me recently was Proverbs 18, 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Right? We often just assume, well, I heard him say it, so it must be true. But what we're seeing here is that these guys are making all sorts of assumptions about what Paul has done, and they're assuming it must be true when actually it is false. And this is kind of the mad world that we live in. I mean, just to play this out, have you, have you ever been mad at somebody for something that they did to you in a dream? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we've all been there. And it's like the worst, like, when you wake up and you're, like, angry with your spouse. And you're like, oh. like, what? Oh, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> did what? Well, in my dream. I can't believe what you said to me. It was a dream. Yeah, well, it was real to me, okay? Right? <laughs> But this is kind of how our society as a whole works, church included. We aim and shoot, and then we ask questions later. And we see this with Paul's enemies, that they're just aiming, and they're shooting, and they're building this case, but they're, they're wrong. They're, they're building something false. And I think there's something here for us to pay attention to, that we must never be a people that assume, but we must be a people who examine, that we search for truth. That we don't just jump to conclusions, but that we're ready to examine the, the, the full story in front of us, not to paint somebody in the light that we, we wish them to be. Even sometimes we hope that someone's as bad as we think they are. Isn't that a weird thing that we root for people's downfall at times? And some of you are like, no, there's a lot of people I'd like to see taken down, right? I've got a list. I know you do, okay? But the gospel says that it can change anyone, and we got to be a people that move forward in faith that God is still active and can move and create change in even our worst enemies. Because while we were enemies, 
Christ reconciled us to himself. So let us not be a people that assume, but let us be a people that examine. Paul was never given this chance. And in verse 30, we read that, they, that all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and the people ran together and, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, they wanted to end him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort. So he's, the tribune would have been up in the Antonia fortress with the, the staircase would have come down into the temple courts. They would have been right there and he would have had about 400 to 500 soldiers at his will. And his whole thing was to make sure to keep peace at the temple mount. He knew it's, it's the feast of Pentecost. There's all sorts of people in town. The last thing he wants is some kind of uprising or some kind of uh, rage that's happening with the people. And so he gets there as fast as he can, not because he cares about Paul, but because he wants to keep the peace. And he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So just keep this in mind. They grab hold of Paul. They falsely accuse him. They pull him out of the temple and they're just beating him until the authorities show up. Once the authorities show up, they drop him like, well, I don't know what happened. He's bleeding. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And in this moment, Paul is, is, is grabbed by the Roman authorities and they take him, and they, they actually chain him. We're told that he's chained one hand to one soldier, one hand to the other. He's in between two soldiers. And I have to imagine that as they're, they're putting the chains on, he's just thinking to himself, like, oh, the words of Agabus, here, here they are. Lord, you told me this would happen, and here, here we are. But so great was this violent intent of the mob towards Paul that we're told that the soldiers that, that were chained to him, they, they don't just like drag him along. No, they actually carry him up the steps to get him out of the fray because they were unsure of what the mob might do. And what we see here is that we're, we're coming to the beginning of the end. Paul will begin a series of trials after this that will eventually lead him to Rome. But what's so impressive to me, and we're going to look at this next week, his, his defense of himself and what he shares in the moment where he's, he's given opportunity to speak. What was so impressive is that along the way, what we do not hear from the lips of Paul is complaint. We do not hear him whine. We do not hear him plead for his rights. Rather, when given the opportunity, we hear the gospel on the lips of Paul, the truth of who Jesus is. The last thing we hear in verse 36 is the people saying, away with him. And as they're saying away with him, they're not just saying, get him out of our sight. They're saying, take the very breath from his lungs. We want this man dead. And what's so fascinating to me is that Paul had come. And in the midst of his suffering, Paul was still serving He was still seeking to make the gospel known, to make the name of Jesus known. All his life lived for the goodness of the gospel. So my question for us is, what do we take from this? What do we see for ourselves in this moment? Because the very people that wanted Paul dead are the very people that he came to serve. Willingly, knowing what was was facing him. He stepped in because he believed in the victory of Christ over all things and that gave him the strength and the ability far beyond what he was capable on his own. 
where there was that gap of fear and trust, he firmly planted himself in Jesus. And he follows in the footsteps of Jesus, who himself saw equality with God as not something to be grasped or held onto, but, but came in human form that he may serve, not be served, but to serve, to give all of himself that in him we might have life. And so Paul takes this on, trusting that the way of Jesus is better and truer. And that the sacrifice and the suffering is worth it in Christ. And this is how he moved forward in faith. For Paul himself had been rescued. Paul himself had been redeemed. Paul himself had experienced grace. And for Paul to live was Christ. And to die was gain. Therefore, he walked into the fire in full faith and trust in Jesus. Trusting the will of God over his own fears, trusting in the victory and the ability of God even beyond the chaos and the division that was before him. He moved forward in faith because he was free. No matter what chains we see Paul wearing, and he wears a lot of them, he was always free and alive in Christ. That same freedom, that same strength, that same clarity is available to all of us today, all who call upon the name of Jesus. That even in the darkest of nights, we can walk in the light of him. So my prayer is that we give our lives to Christ, trusting him in the good and trusting him in the bad, trusting him when the path seems clear and trusting him when the path seems unclear, trusting him when the path seems easy and trusting when things are hard. And that whatever you are holding on to as your safety, your comfort, whatever is keeping that gap there between the faith and trust of finding life in Christ, my hope is that you would release that to Jesus today, moving forward in faith in him. For whoever would lose their life in Christ will surely find it. You pray with me. Father, as we, um, we look at the example of Paul, as impressive as his life is, it's, it's a mere shadow can, compared to the substance and reality of who you are, Jesus. It is you who rescues, it is you who saves us. So that even when we find ourselves in the perilous moments of life, wishing that the way forward was not the way we are to go, we can trust in your strength above our own. We can continue to hope that you are alive and you are active and you are moving. And so God, where we are not trusting you, where we are continuing to cling to our, our fears or our anxieties, Lord, would we choose to trust in you? Would we die to ourselves that we might live in you? And God, for any in this room who have yet to make that decision, would they see you in the beauty of who you are? That we don't have to be defined by our past actions, but that we can find our true identity in you. And so Lord, would we turn toward you would we set our face on you, moving forward in faith, following in your footsteps and finding life in you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.
as we close um, and we sing together, uh, we also come to the table together. And, and this morning, I want to encourage you at your, at your own pace, when you're ready, take of the cup, take of the bread. But before you do so, I'd encourage you just to examine yourself and allow Christ to, to seek out anything within you that is hindering you from truly living for him. Anything that you are holding on to, that you are placing your trust in, that's diverting you in a way that, that is leading you away from him and not towards him. For his grace is sufficient. His life has been given for you. May you trust in this truth and may you move forward in faith. Let us reflect and then as you're ready, take communion on your own. What a hopeful statement that you're not finished with me yet. That your past doesn't have to define you. What you're facing right now doesn't have to be insurmountable. But in Christ, we can become a new creation. You can have life in him, through him, by him, and live for him. May we as his people move forward in faith in him, making much of him in all things. For I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. May this truth penetrate our soul and shape who we are. May we find our identity in him. And if you find yourself in a spot where that's just too hard to believe and you need prayer, we'll be down here afterwards. If you want to talk around what it means to step into life with Jesus, we will be here. If you need a Bible, we'll give you one. But as we leave from here today, may the truth of Christ be what guides us. Even when we perceive darkness all around, may his light shine. So may you go forth in his grace and his peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week.